0: Welcome to the Natural History cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host Gareth. And with me, as always, is Aaron. Say hi. Hello. Hello there. Hello there. It's not really. It's not really the same if you if you don't start out with that. General <laughs> I, I well, yes, yeah, um, and it is well. It's just you this evening, isn't it, Aaron? It is just, just, just me. Yep, uh, Drew's away on a well-earned break, and uh, it is just the two of us. So we are going to be steering the cupboard, hopefully not into the rocks. If you can steer a cupboard,
1: <laughs> I I missed an opportunity there to say Megavan and in Melon. You did actually,
0: yeah, yeah. What's Melon then, friend? Oh. Melon. What? What's friend in elvish? Melon. What? What's Melin? Friends. Oh, I see. Well, there you go. Tolkien <laughs> was rather good. He even put the plurals of friend
1: and friends. I've been looking into his uh into some of his language stuff. It's it's very in depth.
0: Tolkien was yeah. You know, he was a definite uh master of uh, of of languages. But I think he didn't. He speak at least three or four of them, other than ones that he obviously created himself. But yes, yeah. yes, he did. Yeah, and he contributed to the Oxford
1: Dictionary.
0: Oh, well, there you go. Thank you for tuning into the uh, Natural <laughs> Hobbit podcast this week <laughs> tonight in the Green Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, shall we get more onto the subject of animals uh, as opposed to uh, mythical lands? Uh, which are equally as interesting. We so uh, have you have you been up to anything uh, nature-based this week? I'd love to say I have, but I have spent most of the week very, very sick. So uh, oh dear.
1: I've
0: done very, very little other than helping guide some of my students through their uh, synoptics for um, animal care. So that's been, uh, well, the bit of the week that I wasn't uh, incredibly ill uh, was, was spent doing that. So uh, what have you been doing, Eric? I'm going to be honest. I've not actually done anything uh, this week. Oh, no. terrible. Nah, no, I've not done anything. This is why we need Drew here, uh, for the very simple reason that he's out and about in the uh, the outside world more than we are. We're, uh, we're quite yeah, often the, confined indoors, you and I. In the Drew mobile. Yeah, he's uh, he's out and about. In fact, he's probably out and about, at, well, not at the moment because we're recording of an evening. But uh, he's, he's probably been out and about today, I'd imagine I would have thought so, yeah hmm. Well, shall we, shall we jump from our lack of news of the natural world Into actual news of the natural world? Yeah, okay It's the news! Right, well, we're into this week's news. Aaron, what are we looking at in the newsreel? Well, yes, as uh,
1: regular cupboard dwellers will know, here in the Natural History cupboard, we'd like to keep you all updated on the big news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. But we don't always have time to get through them all, so let's
0: jump into the Natural History cupboard Newsreel and bring you all up to speed. Mm. Um, so first off, from Bay, Brazilian three-banded armadillos benefit from uh, community conservation Bahia? Bahai? Bahia? Bahia. Bahia. I'm glad you speak Portuguese. Nope, I don't. <laughs> is that, would that be a Portuguese name or? I don't yes, anyway, it doesn't matter. Anyway,
1: Brazilian, is Portuguese, yeah.
0: Yeah. So anyway, in Bahia, um, the species which is endemic uh, to the semi-arid dry forests of northeastern Brazil uh, is listed as vulnerable by the ICUN due to habitat loss, hunting, uh, former president's, Uh, and will be subject to a (laughs) long-term monitoring and citizen science in the village of Sumedoro uh, in Chapa Diamantina region, Bahia. I managed to get through that and not butcher it too much. Uh, The study aims (laughs) to estimate the species population trends as conservationists begin to see a recovery of the population thanks to effective community-based conservation and lack of a former president. (laughs) <laughs> coming to us again
1: from Mongabay most of top 10 hotspots for jaguar conservation are in Brazil's indigenous territories so we're still in Brazil for this one. Uh, this is the news that a group of researchers have identified the highest priority protected areas in the Brazilian Amazon for jaguar conservation and 8 of the top 10 can be found in indigenous territories. The report highlights the need for closer partnership with indigenous peoples and local communities who share their homes with this Absolutely stunning big cat
0: so going further north to another indigenous group uh, much further north we're up in canada uh where an indigenous uh, indigenous funding model uh, is a win-win for ecosystems and local economies in canada hmm. according to Mongabay, bay one of the world's first project finance for permanence models uh, i've seen uh, 27 first nations spend nearly uh 109 million on 439 uh, environmental and economic development projects in their territories, including initial research, habitat restoration, and Guardian programs, all of which have attracted uh, returns worth 296 million, uh, which is roughly 214 million American. Uh, Further funding uh, has been arranged for 123 uh, Indigenous-led businesses, and was spent towards sustainable infrastructure and renewable energy projects.
1: Next up, uh, these first four have actually lined up pretty well. We've had uh, Brazil, Brazilian indigenous, and then indigenous and Canada. Now we're going over to Alaska's. uh, Fizz.org brings us news that a lawsuit has been filed in a bid to halt Alaska oil drilling project. We've highlighted his good decisions, so we will also underline his bad decisions. And this decision... uh, to drill for oil in a time when we should be looking to renewables is a big one. Luckily, six environmental groups have stood against this, filing a lawsuit in the US District Court, accusing the Interior Department and other agencies, uh, including Biden, the Biden administration, of violating the National Environmental Policy Act, Endangered Species Act, and other laws.
0: Mm. And heading down under now, it uh, seems far better anyway. Uh, To Australia. Uh, And it seems that Tasmanian devil whiskers may hold the key to protecting uh, these super scavengers. According to Fizz.org, using technology, sorry, using a technique called stable isotope analysis, a single devil whisker can provide a window into the animal's past by enabling Mm -hmm. measurements of nitrogen and carbon in the whisker to match up to the chemical makeup of the prey available and examine how this varied across their range. This highlighted how the devil's diet is far more restricted in areas affected by humans, most notably around roads and in rural areas where the diet is most entirely made up of paddy melons, often scavenged after being hit by cars. This is restricted, but easily accessed food items may cause two obstructions to the devil's conservation in that it attracts them to roads where they could uh, themselves be hit, and the other encourages them to gather at risk of, uh, of further spread, of devil facial tumor disease
1: and finally hollow bones that let dinosaurs become giants evolved at least three times independently shows study so this again comes from phys.org and they report on a study that analyzed fossilized bones from three brazilian species of the late triassic when dinosaurs emerged so we've gone full circle we started uh, started in uh, brazil went all the way up north to alaska down over to uh, Australia and back in Brazil. Anyway, the fossils analysed were found between 2011 and 2019 by researchers at the Federal University of Santa Maria in an area known as Quarta Colonia near Santa Maria in Rio Grande, Rio Grande do Sul. Uh, and they belonged to the species Baryolestes Bur- schultzi, Pampadromius barbaronei, and Nefavorax cabriari <laughs> try saying that fast uh, the study showed no common ancestor bore this trait and that the air sacs of hollow bones must have developed independently uh, and that will do it actually for this week's Natural History Cupboard Newsreel I was half expecting drew to chip in but i forgot for a moment um he's not here <laughs> he's not here so he can't chip in. guys if you have a news story you want us to cover send it in to us and you might see a chosen topic or news article covered here or in our main topics uh, and we have actually had a, f- a fair few people send them in don't worry we're not ignoring them we will get to them um in time well and you say that, we're so- not
0: ignoring them aaron you're, you're the one who's ignoring them. yeah I, you're I, the one doing <laughs> this uh yeah well, erect your rage at Aaron. Not,
1: not intentionally. <laughs> uh, but with that said, let's dive on into those main topics. So, uh, Gareth, take it away. Okay.
0: Right. Well, I've got a, a, a... What I would say is a slightly controversial article for you this week. Uh, ha, are you aware of the film Rambo? Unfortunately so. That will be, that well, will be now. heresy to say that. but I mean, that. there's the controversial so. bit already. Um, I've never liked Rambo or, or Rocky. Really, no. the first—I ra- mean, the first Rambo—I think—is brilliant. It's a—it's a brilliant uh, commentary on on uh, you know, like uh, people returning from war, veterans, and and uh, the fact that soldiers get anyway. There's got there's got nothing to do. It. With- I'm just more anyway. of a commando guy. <laughs> Fair enough. So Australia's five-year hunt for Rambo is finally ended. <laughs> what by rain. <laughs> And it wasn't first blood or anything like that but believe me that comes into this now rambo i left one word out is a fox right okay so (laughs) rambo is in fact a fox an elusive fox named rambo has finally been declared dead after five years on the run in australia uh that frustrated hunters and conservationists alike the fox has managed to escape death on countless occasions as he roamed deep inside the the Pillager State Forest. Uh, Despite hundreds of hours of hunting and thousands of traps being laid, Rambo uh, managed to be the sole survivor of a purge of non-native predators, uh, feasting on endangered Australian species uh, within this conservation zone in New South Wales. Now, his reign of terror has delayed the reintroduction of 6,000 native species as well to this 5,800 hectare safe haven. So we're not talking about um, a completely wild area. This this is a a huge area, Um, tiny compared to obviously the majority of Australia, but fenced off to keep out predators. Wayne Sparrow, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy Pillager operations manager, told the ABC uh, that Rambo's death was a huge boost for their conservation efforts. Our project is to reintroduce native mammals, particularly bilbies, betongs, nail tail wallabies, shark bay bandicoots, as well, he said. All of these mammals fall into critical range of that species and are heavily preyed upon by cats and foxes. Rambo was last seen on camera traps in October, and it's thought that he perished in floods in the region late last year, although his body has not been recovered. I know it could be a sequel hopefully not because to be honest I'm very much on the side of the conservationists here Mm -hmm. so and I'll get on to the why that's a bit of an issue in a second Um, so in 1980 the the article that I I managed to get this from from the ABC uh, says in 1982 the action classic first blood Vietnam veteran John Rambo played by Sylvester Stallone uses his lethal skill to survive a massive manhunt in the woods near the fictional town of Hope. While the first Rambo film spawned four sequels, which I still can't believe, actually, uh, conservationists are now certain that this Redford namesake story is finally over after almost five years. Probably 80% of the control efforts were actually spent trying to find evidence of the fox existence uh, and where he was moving but we are now very confident the fox has met its match, uh, he ended. European red foxes were introduced into New South Wales in 1845 for the sole reason to be hunted by people uh, in the same way that they have been hunted here in the UK. There are now millions in Australia, and they're one of the most dangerous invasive species. Uh, they've, been devastating, um, they've had a devastating effect on native uh, animals, such as numbats, quokkas, bridal nail wallabies, burrowing betongs and they're blamed for the extinction of several species uh everything from the desert kangaroo rat right the way up to several species of bandicoot so in 2016 researchers said uh, some of the red foxes in australia had even learned to climb trees to look for unsuspecting baby koalas to eat so they are a pest Mm -hmm. in the truest sense now i have two two thoughts on this growing up in australia and and starting out doing conservation and uh, that sort of work in Australia I am very much of the all the foxes and cats and non-native species in Australia need to go hands down needs to happen we need to eradicate them control their numbers because in Australia those animals are not natives and they do a huge amount of damage there are some areas that you know we have to learn to live with uh, live, learn to live with them and that's why obviously things like domestic cats um in people's houses should either have um enclosed areas to be able to still go outside but not affect australian wildlife and not just australia but anywhere where those animals are not native to um but obviously having lived in the uk and being very anti hunting very mm uh especially fox hunting is is just cruel barbaric and just i don't know it just seems to show that you're a very small pathetic petty person to actually have to go after and torture a small animal for your own jollies mm. um whilst doing it on the back of another animal it just seems absolutely insane uh so i've obviously got a different sort of hat on when i'm in the uk because foxes are native to the UK, they're in their environment. They're so, doing what they do naturally. It, it's sorry to cut you off there, but it's case by case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: what what we're doing here is is not conservation. Uh, it doesn't yeah. protect anything. And there's far better ways to protect what uh, what we've got here and what we should have here.
0: In uh, definitely, and there, there is a reason I bring this up because as with all of these sort of clickbaity articles that tend to come up, um, and this, to be honest, is not clickbaity. It's actually some really good work going on, put with a a sort of kind of clickbaity title to get people to click on it for obvious reasons. Um, The comments of these sort of things are always just gold mines. And I thought I'd have a quick look through some of them, and I've copied three down that basically give you an idea of the flavor of what most people are thinking when they read an article about this especially reading an article like this from the UK without knowing what it's like in that particular country. Mm -hmm. So first comment, I've not included names or anything like that. So what about the danger posed to these animals from protected venomous snakes? I am of course going to read them in stupid voices because they are stupid comments. Yep. Sure. So they are proposing that the foxes don't pose as much of a threat as a venomous snake. Venomous snakes. Animals native have snake. evolved to live around, <laughs> of course. <laughs> exactly.
1: I, was, I just, put- you know, what we need? We need uh, like a button, right? That but when, <laughs> when, when one of us brings up something that someone has said, and it, let's be fair, it's mostly going to be used for politicians, but <laughs> every now and then, a gammon decides to open its mouth. Uh, but you
0: can just press this button; it goes more wrong there's <laughs> a definite face palm moment of oh my God, what are you thinking um so you know you just i mean that that's in there because it's hilarious the whole situation came about by people putting an animal into an environment for their own purposes in the 19th century in this case to hunt if they'd not have done so the native wildlife would have not suffered that's an argument that i hear far too often which is um well, we put the animal there. It's our fault. O- okay. But that doesn't solve the issue now. Unfortunately mm. we messed up. We messed up bad. What do you do when, when G- Gareth, just
1: what do you, what do you do when, uh, when your kid makes a mess? I clean it up. <laughs> it's funny that, isn't it? What do you do when you make a mess?
0: Oh, well I, I clean it up. Uh... It's funny that like,
1: it's all right. This happened such a long time ago. There's no point cleaning up.
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. It's sort of it's we should the just moron button coming back. It's it's <laughs> a, it's a worthy thing to obviously think. Okay, yes, those poor foxes will get hunted down in in Australia. Now that's that's, that's sad. sad, and and I don't want to demean uh, any anyone who thinks that I think less of a fox in Australia than I do a fox in um, the UK because I don't. Both of them are living creatures. Both of them are capable of the same sort of thoughts and feelings that either would be able to, regardless of whether, what side of the planet yeah. they're on. The unfortunate thing is, conservation is not um, is not always about making. Uh, it's, it's it's unfortunately has it, a lot of hard decisions that have to be made. Yeah, and whether that's um, taking out populations of deer or populations of goats on a mountain that have been destroying native plants in New Zealand or Hawaii, you know, environments where these animals had never existed, and they're decimating things for multiple species of animals that only exist in those places. We have to make those hard decisions. Personally, I would be more than up for the idea of, and this would be a huge amount of money to be spent on it, capturing every single one of those foxes and then either relocating them to Europe or into captive collections. However, that would pose a massive animal welfare thing to them in the sense of they're being caught up and transported and put in unfamiliar situations where the stress would probably kill them. They could be carrying diseases. They could, you know, bring in uh, all sorts of parasites that could wipe out our own, Fox populations so it's unfortunate but the kindest decision in these situations is to eradicate them from those areas um, and make up for the mistakes that our ancestors made so yeah, uh, yeah. anyway the, the final one i've got is poor rambo the article mentions his reign of terror but doesn't mention people in australia killing kangaroos or other wildlife for amusement in New Zealand the government sanctioned dropping poison from helicopters to kill non-indigenous creatures as if they knew that these non-indigenous creatures uh, it sorry as if they knew they were non-indigenous this disgusting poison kills all wildlife that country is off my bucket list to visit but so... people don't understand that one case doesn't reflect the <laughs> what the the
1: the, the ethical rights and wrongs of other cases, like as if the fox exactly in Australia is linked to, to people killing kangaroos. If that fox wasn't there, people
0: wouldn't be ca- killing kangaroos. Is that what people are trying to convince people here? It's it's very loose logic, if that, but oh, yeah, the, the final one on that is like I said, the New Zealand government dropping poison it's poison for rats and it's put in bait boxes and things that no native species will be able to access they don't just drop poison willy-nilly in bags of sweets out the side it's of a helicopter
1: that one day you wake up and it's all blue outside you're bleary eyed you've had a hard night the night before and and you open the window oh honey honey it's snowed oh no it's blue oh they've been out with the rat poison they again yeah uh, the rat dust of,
0: of wellington and auckland just throwing it out bags yeah. of the stuff they are the, they're the crop, targeting little villains. biplane
1: little biplane flies over really low just <laughs>
0: Rat dusting. Yep, they're basically targeting small islands where there are little populations of rats. Very and- smart rats in New Zealand, by the way. Every
1: month when they do their their <laughs> their monthly rat dusting, they will go underground for several days, <laughs> wait wait for other animals to eat it. But yes, there is
0: <laughs> there is some of the 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 comments from idiots corner shall we say i i mean i don't want to call people idiots it's it's a well i actually i think i do if they jump instantly to throw things on there almost like uh, a lot of the comments you see on facebook posts and twitter and it's people shouting without bothering to uh, engage brain before mouth usually to be
1: fair sometimes sometimes it comes from the place of concern good place it comes from a place of yeah a place of concern with a kind heart but um that's why conservation is 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 carried out in a scientific way not in an emotive way
0: yeah yeah it's and i thought that would be the perfect article to bring up in the sense that it really does straddle that line it's an animal that is despised in australia as well A lot of people keep chickens. A lot of people keep rabbits and all those sort of things Uh that foxes get into. You know, Um, to be honest, I've seen more foxes when I lived in Australia than I've ever seen here in the UK. Apart from once when driving through London, Mm. Um, but out where we are in in the countryside here, I'd be lucky if I ever saw a fox. You know, they're that good at blending into the back uh, background
1: yeah and also there's there is some habitat for them
0: for yeah i here to, to be in as much as uh, we've and, tried to wreck it and to be honest foxes here look a hundred times uh more sleek and and just the, their condition looks better as well in australia they're quite often um quite mangy quite scabby you know they are they are living in a, a country where they're not actually from but they're very adaptable animals and can cope so do they i got a question do they do they call fox do they call foxes foxes over there or if they come up with a
1: name like quasic yeah it's a chairs (laughs) was now it's a fox
0: yeah (laughs) yeah no it's just called a fox (laughs) fair enough i mean people went hmm yeah yeah no it's that's simple it's three letters that'll do (laughs) It's late. Yeah. They've already named a load of animals. Time to go down to the pub. Exactly. When you when you've already gone. Look over there. It's a bridal nail tail wallaby. Oh, it's gone. Okay. By that point, you know, fox is a lot easier to say. Yeah. But yeah, right. Shall we move on to uh, your news article, Aaron? Yeah, yeah. Mine's a mine's a short article, but one that you are you'll.
1: I think you might be proud of me for for trying to cover something concerning this animal, to be honest, uh, because. My news article uh, is headlined researchers reveal evolution of oldest Spinosaur brains. Oh God. <laughs> I've <laughs> I'm actually covering an article of the Spinosaur. I just to be clear, I don't have a problem with Spinosaur. I have a problem with Jurassic Park three. It was a terrible movie before the Spinosaur <laughs> turned up. In fact, the first time I watched it, I didn't even get to the Spinosaur bit. Um. Anyway, so my, uh, my, my article is, uh, is coming to us once again from fizz.org. I've used it a few times uh, this, this episode. And it's a little bit on the older side, being published on the 22nd of February. But it's an interesting one nonetheless. Um, so basically, to understand the evolution of spinosaur brains their senses and how they interacted with their environment a team of researchers from ohio university and the university of southampton scanned the fossilized brain cases of serratus and baryonyx to british spinosaurs and the oldest spinosaurs for which the brain case is known which is really cool because they both come from 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 our neck of the woods our, our end of the world uh, now, once once scanned, the team digitally digitally reconstructed the internal soft tissues in order to look into the animal's mind, and what they found was a very primitive olfactory bulb—that's the part that analyzes smells—and that the ears were probably attuned to uh, very low frequency sounds. Uh, and they also discovered that the parts of the brain responsible for reliably tracking prey with the head and eyes. Um, it, 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 wouldn't have kept the uh, wouldn't have kept these uh, these tools all that stable and were also very primitive in comparison to the later, more specialised spinosaurs. Now, the results have a great deal owed to them. uh, uh, Sorry. now the results have a great deal owed to modern advancements in CT scanning and its application to paleontology uh, through which the reconstruction and analysis of the brains of long dead species can now be examined. They can interpret the findings as evidence that long before Spinosaurus aegypticus terrorized its range, it's Uh, I've read that a bit wrong. They can interpret the findings as evidence that long before Spinosaurus aegypticus terrorized its range, its ancestors were already owners of brains and sensory adaptations that were ideal for part-time fishing. Uh, And that to become truly specialized, they just needed to evolve, and I quote, an unusual snout and teeth, end quote. Uh, Which, of course, they did, because they ended up being a theropod with essentially a crocodile's face. So that is pretty much it. And as as short a summary as I've given here, uh, that is actually the main bulk of the article it's a it's a really short one but if you're interested in learn more about this study and its findings the research has been published in a freely accessible article in the journal of anatomy so so do dive in uh because because it's a it is a
0: really interesting read i gotta admit i i always like it when there's a new paper on spinosaurs coming out because there's always always good memes going on uh, about those hmm. there was one there was another paper that came out about the same time last week as well about Spinosaurus uh, not being able to walk because it's too front-heavy. and Yeah, I didn't it's, get that. Oh, it's, uh, this is why I'm not touching Spinosaurus. For, this is why I'm not touching Spinosaurus with a barge pole for the moment, because as much as I love that dinosaur, and it has been on my list since day one to do as a creature feature, there is just too much for me to put in there change wise that would mean that it would make the creature feature just a bit messy i think so yeah yeah we'll allow it to stay changeable for the moment when it realizes what it uh, what it wants to be we'll go with what it is then um but that that was good Aaron. it's it's always nice to know that there's a well there's always gonna be a new paper coming out about spinosaurus they're just that popular yeah Shall we uh, take a dive into our Creature Feature for this week then? Yeah, yeah, I think we, we shall. Cool. And that might be a hint as to where we're going. It's the Creature Feature. Right. Well, we're into this week's Creature Feature. Uh, and this one follows on, Aaron, from, well, two previous Creature Features. One will become far oh, yeah. more apparent uh, as we go on, in fact, I've nicely quoted it uh, in, in the uh, the script that I've written. But the other mm-hmm. one is obviously the Mary Anning episode, for the very obvious reason that she was directly responsible for finding some of the first major specimens from this group of animals uh, and bringing them to light to the scientific, the scientific establishment at the time. So she is directly responsible for some of the information that we know about these very charismatic group of animals so i'm going to start off Aaron, with uh, a little bit of um a thought exercise for you okay imagine if you will you are a small pterosaur a patinosaurus in fact you have a wingspan of around 60 centimeters so that puts you okay. on si- uh, like wingspan size with a little owl now obviously you're nowhere near as uh, as chunky as a little owl you're a little bit sort of skinnier, you don't have feathers covering your body, sort of ploofing you out, uh, mm. you are you are a lot smaller. So more bat-like in, in that sort of sense, which uh, you are one of the smallest, but you're also one of the earliest pterosaurs uh, in existence. You've got tiny, sharp, needle-like teeth in quite a small sort of capital D-shaped beak. Um, to give you an mm-hmm. idea, in fact, Ptynosaurus featured in Walking with Dinosaurs the New Blood episode, which is the first... Episode of Walking with Dinosaurs. You saw right. them sort of flittering around, catching stuff. They they spend their lives catching insects and, and other small winged uh, creatures uh, as they're flying around. Uh, it's your main prey. You yourself, you live on a rocky escarpment uh, next to a calm, shallow tropical sea. You're basically living on the cliffs, right on the edge of the beach. In a sort of uh, this is a gentle time of the year. The uh, the place where you are can get pretty horrible um as the uh, the seasons change and it is seasonal here but it is pretty much always hot it's always dry and the only real relief is where you are because you've got the sea on one side okay you're hungry story Basically, of my sat, life yep you've sat still too long <laughs> where would you like to go looking for food um on the wing uh, keep in mind of course that behind you and up over the top of these cliffs um from the relative shelter of where you are uh, is thousands of miles of inland, known to us basically as, as Pangaea. Uh, mm. And it gets increasingly more arid and harsh the further you go in, to the point where there are grand deserts in the center. But in your simple mind, and I say simple because you are, well, quite simple. a small little pterosaur. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are but a small pterosaur. But uh, to you, it's, it's basically known as that hot, dry place with no good food. Mm. So uh, where are you going looking for food, Aaron? Well, well my first thought is um don't know if these will
1: have existed at the time, which kind of betrays my ignorance uh of of prehistoric inverts a little bit, but um I'd probably go down near the near the shoreline, near the on, on the beach, looking for like them kind of springtail type things that
0: flip flop around when I when I'm down there. Okay. Yep. they the little like I know what you yeah, mean. The... You mean sandhoppers. Yeah. They're a tiny little uh, uh, crustacean, crustacean, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, know... they, they're definitely around. Um, cool. that's, that's a good place. And you're going to find them down by rotting seaweed uh, mm. and all the debris on the strand line of the beach. Uh, so that's the perfect place to go. Uh, you've chosen to search for food on the beach, snatching up insects, uh, attracted by the rotting vegetation, the humidity... Mm. Of the area as well, because, like I say, it's quite sheltered. You're tucked away. You've got the sea on one side, uh, and seaweeds that uh, get washed up on the shore, along with dead animals occasionally. Now, you manage to chase at this point a large dragonfly. This will be essentially a whole turkey for you. You, uh, this is your Christmas dinner mm. all all at once. Uh, it's big, but it's fast. This thing is is really really good at staying away from you as much as it can and you effectively have now entered into an aerial combat uh, after this uh, this aerial predator itself as far as in attack positions indeed <laughs> its speed easily matches yours but you are able to keep up and basically get an eye of where it's going to go next and it starts to get desperate as you gain on its tail you can taste that juicy insect in your beak mm. already you are planning what, you know, how quickly you're going to munch this thing down. Uh, and thanks to your lightweight but powerful body, you are definitely keeping up with every sharp turn of maneuver it throws at you. Um, I'm like a pod racer in boom to Eve. Uh, definitely. All of a sudden, it throws a right hand turn at you and shoots out over the water, uh, trying to lose you in the glare of the sun as it hits the, uh, the gentle waves. Do you follow? Do you let this prey get away?
1: Uh, unfortunately you you've already said that i'm a simple animal so I, I think my uh i think my fear of potential predation from the depths has been eliminated by the tasty morsel i can almost i can almost taste in my beak so yeah i'm gonna hang a right and whoosh, straight out over sea after it okay you you in certain a- death. i'm sure
0: <laughs> <laughs> i don't know what you're talking about you throw in a right-hand banking turn, very quickly gaining on the, uh, the your prey, uh, and you dart out over the water. Uh, and then, within an instant, boom! A flash, massive jaws, teeth, pain, and then darkness. Oh, you have you that that's it. I'm afraid your 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 dragonfly detonators. prey keeps on flying, and well, it it's laughing at you with its tiny dragonfly voice i guess uh but you have just become prey to a marine monster from a family of marine mo- uh, reptiles that will rule the waves for almost 160 million years sad sad end for your your uh your Patinosaurus persona uh but back in the uh back in the room as it were you're not dead don't worry you are you are with uh you you've not been chomped on mm-hmm. but i know what some of you might be thinking they might be thinking, Gareth, haven't we had a creature feature on giant marine reptiles that dominated the planet's oceans for millions of years? The Mosasaurs, as in season one, episode 35, a great mm. animal of Maastricht. To which I say, shut up. This isn't a redo of those Jurassic World movie monsters that Aaron talked about. <laughs> no, this is, this is a far uh, more interesting group of animals instead. One of my favorite groups of marine reptiles, and in fact, the original group of marine reptiles to rule the ancient seas this is the ichthyosaurs Uh, because these are my favorite group of marine reptiles from the mesozoic era it's hard to focus on an individual species Um, and i'm not just saying that just because i couldn't be bothered to look at one species because there are so many of them with so many different attributes it would be unfair to focus on just one and leave the rest out and come back to them in dribs and drabs i would much rather give the overview now Uh, Like we did with trilobites, and then bring up individual fascinating species uh, as we go on. Mm. Uh, And the trilobite episodes um, that were the trilobite episode we did, obviously, being in season two, episode 34, A Tale of Trilobites, which coincidentally is actually where our story starts uh, with the death of the trilobites. Mm. Aaron, do you remember why the trilobites are no longer with us? Um,. Wasn't it the um, the Great Dying? It was indeed the Great Dying. Um, so yeah. this creature feature rightly begins at the end of that previous creature feature, which was during the Great Dying. So 252 million years ago, uh, planet Earth decided to basically hit the reset button uh, at the end of the Permian era um, <laughs> with what is known as the Great Dying. Uh, this event basically wiped the slate clean. And in some ecosystems, literally did so, uh, with a whopping 90% of all life gone from the Earth, including, obviously as well, all of those trilobites. Uh, however, it left the playing field open for new animals to take up uh, ecological niches, and this is exactly what the, the progenitors to ichthyosaurs did uh, and took full advantage of the, uh, of the open ecosystems that were there at the time. So, first things first what does an ichthyosaur look like? Aaron, can you, uh, can you give us your interpretation of of what an ichthyosaur looks like? Because the name should probably give some of it away to a lot of people, um, but also at the same time, it is one of those creatures that is not always known to people exactly what they are, because they're not as famous as, say, the mosasaurs or the plesiosaurs.
1: Yeah, sure. I, I would say that... Um the body plan is roughly shark-like. It's, it's a fish uh, kind of shape, but the face has a bit of a snout that makes it look a little bit like a vicious dolphin.
0: <laughs> yeah, um, essentially, yes, that's very, very similar uh, to to where I was going to, uh, to take it now. Um, so they do have the body that is very, very dolphin-like uh, in shape, but also shark-like in shape they sort of have attributes of both if you combine the two of them together and you'll see in a moment why um, for a very, very good reason. Obviously one comes before ichthyosaurs and one comes after them. Um, but uh, the name itself as well literally means fish lizard, uh, ichthy meaning fish in in Latin mm. or in, is it, I think that's Greek for, uh, for ichthy, isn't it? As opposed to Latin. Yeah. I don't know what the Latin for fish is, but um, Saurus meaning uh, reptile or lizard. Uh, so they, uh, they basically do look a bit like a, and I've heard them uh, described this way so often, is a reptilian dolphin. Uh, and in fact, Aaron, not to uh, give you sort of PTSD of, uh, of our time spent together on, uh, on ARC, but uh, you probably remember the ichthyosaurs that were on that and how 99% of the other people who played the game just called them dolphins. Yeah. Yes, yeah, I it, do remember that. It did irritate me quite a bit. And there, and there is quite a difference between the two for a very simple reason. Um, but they both have very, very similar uh, traits as well. There basically is a reason why there's this overall Shape that seems to be very similar between uh, these three completely different, unrelated animal uh, animals. Sorry, uh, and that is because there is an arms race uh, that took off at the end uh, of the Permian extinction. So you had the the wholesale destruction of ecosystems, and it meant that there were chances for for species to fill out all these different ecological niches from uh, feeding on the seabed, um, whether it being Uh, feeding on plants to feeding on other animals uh, to open water hunting and everything in between from shallow seas to deeper oceans. All of these places were open and it meant that ichthyosaurs and lots of other creatures as well, but ichthyosaurs were one of the first major successful groups to really, really hone in on this uh, did well. Uh, And they basically copied an already well-worked body plan and that is the mm-hmm. shark body plan. So sharks have been around for millions of years before this point and had specked out in a variety of different ways. But their body plan is very, very similar. It's what's known as tuniform. and that's literally from tuna, uh, although the scientific name for tuna is thuna uh, thunus, um, and that's where thuniform or tuniform form uh, locomotion gets its name, which is the tail providing all the power but allowing the head to stay relatively straight and locked on to what it's doing so that the the tail can be frantically moving uh, side to side but that head is is uh, going straight through and it's a really efficient form of locomotion that allows sharks to go after their prey in open water situations and ichthyosaurs essentially did the same uh, and it's uh, a body plan that has worked so well that it continued on um, when obviously the ichthyosaurs disappeared millions of years later, uh, we see uh, dolphins taking up the exact same way of moving through the water. Now, there is a big difference between the way that sharks and ichthyosaurs and dolphins move. Sharks, uh, like all other fish and like uh, reptiles, move their, sp- uh, their spine side to side, whereas dolphins, because they are mammals like us, they move their spine up and down. So think of uh, a fish swimming through the water. You'll see its tail going side to side. Uh, the same with a crocodile, its tail will go side to side. But if you see a dolphin, it goes up and down, up and down. Uh, and that's their way of moving. But it's still considered tuniform. The dolphin's head is, ha- is is held straight at the front and able to focus on its prey. But this shows the wonders that co Evolution put on display. And it's because if two species face a similar problem or challenge, opportunity, uh, or sort of hole in an environment, an, an ecological niche, uh, evolution will basically end up with them shaping their bodies in very, very similar ways. Both ichthyosaurs, sharks, and dolphins swim after prey in the ocean. So therefore, a streamlined body uh, with fins will provide the best hydrodynamic advantage for them to be able to catch their prey. This allows them to swim faster as well, and obviously outcompete slower animals. Uh, and we know that ichthyosaurs and sharks, as well as dolphins, uh, have streamlined bodies. They had dorsal fins and flippers. And these are the re- results of basically uh, converging along this same line. Since dolphins uh, and sharks uh, also occupy similar niches and face similar situations, they have similar adaptations between the two of them uh, as well. So it basically means that um, we've ended up with three animals that are completely unrelated doing the same jobs uh, throughout history. So it's it's really cool, and you know, given given millions of years down the line, we may see a completely unrelated animal doing exactly the same thing. Uh, if if something works, animals will continue to uh, to do the the exact same thing. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Essentially. Uh, And ichthyosaurs did exactly this. The earliest members of their group, though, didn't exactly have this uh, strongly streamlined dolphin shape to their bodies. They were very much um, more swimming lizards uh, with slightly pointy uh, heads. The earliest fossils of ichthyosaurs show them living in almost a uh, seal-like state. So they would have been semi-aquatic because these came from the land. These were lizards that basically went back to living in the sea. And so there is a sort of a transitional stage, but there isn't much else. We've got a very, very tiny amount of evidence of their uh, ancestry before this point. Uh, one of the earliest ichthyosaur members uh, is Chaohusaurus from China. Uh, it was less than a meter long, and it uh, essentially lived a bit like uh, a bit like a seal. Like I was saying, as they start to get into the sea, we start to see them become more and more adapted. Uh, until eventually we start to get these real streamlined, uh, hyper-efficient uh, predators living in the oceans. And they were predators. Uh, ichthyosaurs ate everything from shellfish, ammonites, and squid, and even other ichthyosaurs as well. Their diet was carnivorous. They were still eating other animals, uh, even even if they were small. So Aaron, the uh, the particular ichthyosaur that enjoyed the taste of you... Uh, as your little Patinosaurus body was swallowed up uh, into its jaws, uh, was a Campylospondylus, uh, Campylo spondylus, one of the earlier uh, groups of uh, ichthyosaurs, which lived right the way around the uh, the coasts of um, Pangaea. Uh, a Campo- hmm. uh, actually means boat vertebra, and they were one of the larger early ichthyosaurs. Imagine an ichthyosaur itself, so this nice streamlined dolphin shape, but make them more a bit like a pilot whale in the sense of a lot longer uh, and their dorsal fin a lot smaller on their back uh, so yeah. probably a bit more snake like in in sort of being able to move in fact completely bringing it more to a, a better analogy would be more mosasaur like long serpentine and able to uh, to move through the water so mm. yeah um you were munched down by a campylospondylus um one of the uh, the earlier ones. So sorry to say, that's that's what got you in the end.
1: Well, you know, but, uh, <laughs> if that was my purpose, then... Well, so yes,
0: fair enough. You've you served your purpose well. Where did they live? Well, they obviously lived in the ocean. Uh, but ichthyosaur fossils have been found on every continent. Uh, and in large part, this is due to them being not just primarily coastal animals. Like I say, they lived pretty much anywhere and everywhere that they could the open ocean the deep ocean they're also found in every single example of what was a mesozoic ocean at the time they're also capable of going into freshwater uh and they yeah turn up pretty much anywhere and everywhere this is even true of some of the earliest members of uh ichthyosauria um and the family the larger group to which they belong which is e- ichthyopterygia uh, and there were many different specializations uh, in ichthyosaurs and equally specialized environments. Um, like I said, they lived in every environment that they possibly could. Uh, and of the over 100 species of ichthyosaur that we found to this date, some of them have turned up to be uh, in truly stunning preservation condition to the point where we were able to look at unborn fetuses and embryos inside of these animals. Um, Aaron, have you ever been to the Natural History Museum in London? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. You've been to the Mary Anning Gallery that they've got there, which is that nice long hallway uh, where they've got most of her finds up on the walls? Yeah. Yeah. So one or two of those specimens that are along there are of, of ichthyosaurs. In fact, quite a few of them. There are pliosaurs and plesiosaurs and all sorts. Uh, but there are one or two of those uh, individual ichthyosaurs that show them giving birth as well. Uh, And it's because a lot of the places where they've died, they seem to have died in what are known as anoxic layers. Uh, So you end up with um, no oxygen in this particular part of the ocean or wherever they are, Uh, Hmm. meaning the bacteria doesn't destroy them or they get covered by a landslide um, in, in the process of giving birth. And it's really sad, obviously, that the animal died this way, but it gives us such an amazing snapshot of how these animals reproduced to the point where we can see the baby still halfway out of what would have been the birth canal um, to, to have then, you know, gone and and been a new ichthyosaur. So these guys didn't come onto land um, to give birth. They, they didn't lay eggs. They gave birth at sea. Um, And some of the, the example, some of the the best examples of uh, these fossils are found in the UK and Germany. Germany's got some really fantastic examples. Um, but yeah, they are found all over the world uh, and some stunning ones. In fact, another good example of places to go and see them is the Bristol Natural History Museum. They've got uh, a whole corner of their fossil gallery dedicated to, uh, to ichthyosaurs. I and mean, it's certainly the only place I've seen one of them that I'll bring up in a minute. Mm-hmm. So uh, some of the noteworthy species of ichthyosaurs to talk about. Chahusaurus, of course, being one of the earliest uh, relatives to ichthyosaurs. But Californosaurus um, is the first or one of the first true ichthyosaurs with that classic dolphin-like shape. Now, can you guess where Californosaurus comes from? Um, Zimbabwe? Yeah, I mean, quite clearly. <laughs> it's quite clearly <laughs> in the name. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's from, well, California. That's one of the earliest ones, and and there are lots of them. Uh, this appears to be the one that sort of has got to that point first, at least of, for the moment. Largest ichthyosaurs, and this is where this family excels because they get big, they get big quick. So hmm. Campylo one of the early Triassic ichthyosaurs, keeping in mind that ichthyosaurs themselves live right the way through to the, uh, the mid to late Cretaceous period. They were, in fact, the biggest things on the planet for a long time and cambelospondylus was was the first truly large creature on the planet that we know of at the moment for its time uh, in history so uh, yeah that's you know pretty cool so some of the contenders for largest species for the, this crown this is still open to debate there is uh the the sorry the largest known at the moment is shastasaurus uh, seconensis. And this uh-huh. is a whale-sized ichthyosaur at around 21 meters long. Possibly could be longer. So that's 69 feet to those of you in freedom units. Um, and uh, you've also got Shionosaurus as well. That is, um in, comp- uh, in competition for this as well. But one that doesn't get talked about a lot, and I think certainly should, is what's known as the Lilstock monster or the Lilstock ichthyosaur. Lilstock is in Somerset, and you've also got Ost in Somerset as well. So down down here in the uh, the southwest of the UK, um, we have got some really nice fossil hunting. Down on the south coast, you've got uh, the Jurassic Coast, which is about 180 million years ago. Right mm-hmm. at the at that sort of point, up on the north coast of Devon and Somerset, you've got earlier rocks and you and i have both been fossil hunting there
1: the yes, further you
0: go towards bristol from devon the sort of further forward in time you go so you're in what is known as the retian panath which is the the edge of the triassic to the jurassic so this is at a point where ichthyosaurs are already around and you've seen some of the bits of ichthyosaur that i've pulled out of the rocks there and they were only small ones and these would have mm. been about the size of, well, I think the one that I've got would probably about around the size of a dolphin, a, a modern-day dolphin. Um, but the Lilstock uh, specimen is only bits and pieces. A few years ago, uh, quite a few years ago, there were bits and pieces found at Cliff, which is just outside of Bristol. It's, in fact, where the bridge over to Wales is, um, at the base of those cliffs you can fossil hunt very, very hard. There's not very much there. But years and years ago, there were some uh, disarticulated bones found there uh, and nothing much was really thought of them until a few years ago, uh, there was some really large bits and pieces found at Lillstock, not too far down the road, a bit further back into Somerset. These particular bones were massive for, for ichthyosaur bones. And there was a paper released about the, the linkage between those, those two different sites and whether they are together. And if that was the case, using uh, size estimates, it would place this particular Triassic ichthyosaur to be a massive 26 meters long, and that would rival a blue whale in size. So that would make it the largest animal on the planet, not just at that point, but in general. So uh, ichthyosaurs would take the absolute crown on that, but it doesn't seem to have gone anywhere. There's not been any other new bits and pieces found. And at some point, I think we should go looking at little stock. It's uh, it's quite nice. I'd be happy to go uh, looking down little stock. Mm, It's a very nice. That'd be really cool. yeah. But anyway, they are the true giants. So we're yet to see whether uh, ichthyosaurs take the ultimate crown of largest animal on the planet. But they certainly take the largest animal in the seas uh, in the Triassic at that point Uh, and even into the Jurassic as well. There were some truly giant uh, animals roaming around the Jurassic period. You would not want to be swimming in the waters, even if you knew an ichthyosaur was around. So largest eyes. This is the next category I've got down. Uh, And just like I say, ichthyosaurs filled a variety of different ecological niches uh, and deep water predators were another one. And obviously, as you go down, you end up with the problem of being able to see. Now, whales can't get their eyes to get any bigger than they currently are. In fact, I think a blue whale's eyeball is is not much bigger than, say, an orange in size. I think they're not massive for such a huge animal. The eyes aren't that aren't particularly big. Do you know why that is, Aaron? I do not know actually. Well, this is to do with the limitations, unfortunately. Of being a mammal. Sorry. Oh, it's actually about the size of a grapefruit. It's all grapefruits with blue whales. Yeah, it isn't the size of their throat <laughs> That's the throat. About it's about the throat is the size of size a grapefruit. Of a... It's all gra- That's obviously the unit of measurement you use to use for a whale, as opposed to using whales, the country, as a unit of measurement for everything else. When everyone talks I about wonder it. how many grapefruits a <laughs> blue whale weighs. A whale weigh? Well, you'd have to go to a whale weigh station for that. <laughs> that's terrible i know please stri- strike that from the record uh, the reason why whales eyes aren't large especially sperm whales which spend their lives deep down under underwater hunting for squid the exact sort of types of prey that species like ophthalmosaurus would have been hunting during the jurassic period because squid have stayed around relatively unchanged for millions of years the reason being we don't have what are called sclerotic rings in our eyeballs which, oh, uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense now. Tiny that, that's little... Just, just clicked. Yeah, they're tiny little bones that if you look at the skeleton of, say, an ichthyosaur or the skeleton of even a dinosaur or a bird uh, or some reptiles, basically every other group of ma- of animals on the planet, except mammals, seem to have these. They help to strengthen the eye, give it more structure. And in birds, they can use it to help focus their vision uh, a bit like a camera lens almost, uh, and allow them to be able to pinpoint prey a lot easier. So if you're diving down into the ocean, and if you were a sperm whale that had eyes the size of a, a dish plate, uh, which is how big ophthalmosauruses were, absolutely huge eyes, they'd explode and crumple in, um, which is, interestingly enough, why whales have evolved uh, echolocation they don't need their eyes when they use echolocation no, and in itself true. has become such a specialized weapon for them that they can essentially fry their prey with uh concentrated blasts from from their um their uh, echolocating uh, uh, body so yeah it's it's yet yeah, again showing the absolute absurdity that evolution uh, allows animals to push their bodies to Hmm. because of one limitation you gain a superpower effectively but anyway back to ichthyosaurs ophthalmosaurus like I say whose eyes are huge and sensitive to dive at they reckon about 500 meters of depth so it would be pitch black at this point they'd be hunting squid and if you manage to look at an ophthalmosaurus skeleton you'll see that their eyes are huge and they had these sclerotic rings uh, in them that allow their eye to remain in shape and stay looking at their prey. Now, another contender for this, and certainly one that is said to actually got, uh, said to have got, that is said to have the largest eyes per its body size of around 20 centimeters in diameter, is uh, another British ichthyosaur, Temnodontosaurus, one of my favorites. Um, And in fact, if not my favorite, the the species that I would love to find uh, at Lyme regis and it's the species that Mary Anning has found as well. There are some truly stunning skeletons of these. They are a huge species as well. They're certainly up there in size. Uh, they reach 10 meters in length. These were huge predatory ichthyosaurs that were probably eating other species of ichthyosaur. So these are uh, the top of the food chain in their environment. Their uh, Their teeth are serrated and also slightly locked into each other as well. So they would have uh, been able to slice through their prey pretty easily their name temnodontosaurus is actually greek for cutting tooth lizard which is uh really cool that's a cool name now we end up down at the bottom of the well i say the bottom of the list this is this is definitely one that deserves to be on there and it's the oddest member of the ichthyosaur family it's excalibosaurus do you want to take a guess where its name comes from yeah from the arthurian legendary sword the uh yeah. Yeah. Yep. It just drags. dragged a sword around with it all the time, swinging mm. it wildly. Um, in one way or another, uh, it did. It it had uh, a um, extremely long, elongated rostrum, the lower jaw, uh, about three fourths the length of the upper jaw, giving the animal a swordfish-like look, uh, just with the lower jaw. So more like a garfish actually than anything else. Yeah. And it lived in the early Jurassic period. And it's another one that's been found in the UK. Uh, and in fact, this is the one that I mentioned that is worth going to see at the Bristol Natural History Museum. It's the first place I'd ever seen one is there. So where are they now? Well, obviously, we don't have ichthyosaurs today, much to my annoyance, because that would be amazing if we had the, the trio of uh, tuniform locomotion masters, sharks, ichthyosaurs, and dolphins, uh, inhabiting the oceans but i think we'd probably have decimated like them like we have the others but why is it that ichthyosaurs who were so well adapted to life at sea became extinct so abruptly and they do because uh, ichthyosaurs were so successful they flourished f- flourished they flourished throughout the triassic the jurassic and even right into the early cretaceous period roughly around 155 million years It's a huge period of time. Uh, It's almost rivaling the length of time the dinosaurs were around. Um, But this is just one family of of animals. Uh, This is a long time, even in geological terms, then somewhat mysteriously during the late Cretaceous period, early to late Cretaceous period, sorry, or middle Cretaceous, there's still a bit of uh, debate over which, but it's specifically the Cenomonian stage. Boom. They're all gone. No more ichthyosaurs. This is roughly about 30 million years before... Uh, another boom would uh, signal the end of uh, the other um, groups of animals that would be around at the same time. So things like mosasaurs and uh, plesiosaurs would also witness the uh, the boom that would uh, wipe things out. But unfortunately, the ichthyosaurs would not, which I suppose is good in some ways, bad in others. But the end of the Cretaceous period, obviously happening 66 million years ago, they're about 30 million years off from that. Now, due to the apparent lack of ichthyosaurs uh, fossils from the mid-Cretaceous, we have to assume that the group was either declining or on the decline. But this could obviously be because we just haven't found them. It's what's called preservation bias. Uh, And in fact, this has actually led to a a long-held belief for many years that the animals were just failing. And it's that whole um, uh, very, very old... Victorian way of looking at it. These were these were stupid animals that couldn't cope with life. They just thought, "Ah, "I'm going to die." But this the actual uh, opposite seems to be true. Um, They were massively diverse at this point, uh, and they remained right up on uh, the sort of the ecological food chain, uh, and and up at you know taking up ecological niches right up until their extinction. Basically, for a very long time, the best theory surrounding their extinction has centered around competition from other predators. So mm. at this point, we're seeing the mosasaurs obviously taking over. Pliosaurs as well have dominated um, lots of other niches. Sharks as well have diversified massively during this period. Uh, in fact, things like crotoxy rhino would rival great white sharks of today uh, in size and just body shape. So filling in all these different ecological niches that essentially were there for the uh, the taking when the ichthyosaurs first rocked up. All these different animals were encroaching on the ichthyosaurs territory. And in addition, uh, a series of extinction events during the Tenemonian uh, also affected marine life at this point as well. Uh, a variety of different like, great die-offs, essentially. Nowhere near as much as what can kick things off. These all seem to have played a part in slowly chipping away at the uh, bedrock that the ichthyosaurs were at until eventually the last few of them disappeared and, and the species or the, the, the group disappeared as a whole as well, ending what was a particularly amazing rain for a particularly amazing group of animals. Thankfully, have the animals that we have today because of people like Mary Anning, um, who found a lot of those different fossils. And like I say, if you get a chance to go to either the Natural History Museum uh, in London um, or the uh, Natural History Museum in Bristol to some and see to go and see some of these specimens, or in Germany, some of the different museums there, they've got an amazing collection of uh, of ichthyosaurs uh, spread throughout a variety of different places. They are an animal that is iconically. The the most iconic Jurassic marine reptile, I think, that is out there, uh, and they don't get enough credit, I think, because they just look a bit like a a reptilian dolphin. Yeah, people just think that they're dolphin. Yeah, yeah, but no, they're, they're by far one of my favorites, and it's I get excited every single time I find a bit of ichthyosaur. I, the one day I want to find a skull, but yeah, they are they're one of my favorites. And uh, and hopefully now one of yours indeed. Right, we'll pull ourselves out of the blood-soaked waters that is the uh, the Mesozoic seas as Aaron's corpse is slowly digested by a Campylospondylus, and we'll one one day I'll be I'll be cro- you'll find me as cro- coprolite, <laughs> and we'll climb onto the uh, shores and make our way to the relative safety of our mailbag. Bing, you've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. And we're into this week's uh, mailbag. Uh, And we're going to start things off with um, our question from last week, which was, uh, what is your favorite plant uh, that most people would consider just a weed? So we went through some of the different ones that we thought um, definitely feature on that uh, that cornucopia there. Um, But we've had some good responses, actually, uh, to this one. So uh, Phil Barber has said, so many to choose from and all very beautiful. I like tansy uh, and you might see a tansy beetle on them if you're in the right area. I also like ragwort for the cinnabar moth. Uh, and that's, yeah, the, the tansy beetle is a, a rare species that, uh, that uh, is only found on the tansy plant and only in a certain part of the UK as well. So a very cool species. Uh, Louise O'Leary has said here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, I would say miner's lettuce. Uh, it is a, it, sorry, it is delish and commonly ignored as a weed. Pretty too. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's an, it's a nice looking little plant from the picture that she sent us as well. Um, I'm ass- I'm assuming it's edible based on the fact that she said that she said it's, uh, is delish. So uh, there you go. Hmm. Um, Charlie Bird has said, uh, Herb Robert, I think it looks very pretty. Uh, and that's also quite true. Uh, Jess, um, Drew's other half, has put, uh, I don't know if it should be classified as a weed, but gorse. The flowers are bright yellow and smell like coconut. Certainly in some places that is definitely thought of as a weed is, is gorse. Yeah. Um, mostly not here in the UK. but uh, And Shelley Kendall has put, Dandelion has to be one of my favourites. Purely because I love attracting the bees. So uh, Drew would be very happy to hear that one uh, as well. Uh, and some honourable mentions uh, that you had sent in to you, Aaron. Um, from, do you want, yeah, from Maggie Watts, uh, Cowslip. Uh, from Philip Schofield. Not the Philip Schofield, I'm assuming. I, I don't think so. Not the well, in you never disguise. <laughs> uh, Himalayan Balsam. Katie Bundock. Um, Ragwort nemesis of horse owners but loved by cinnabar caterpillars uh and caroline berry uh dandelions and daisies some yeah some really good mentions there there's a lot of different plants that um some of them are more invasive than others but uh all really do a a, a part in well kind of making things look pretty as well and being food for insects so we'll move on to this week's uh email that we've had sent in to us Aaron what have we got
1: so our email this week comes to us from listener Chelsea McKee um this I think is her second question that she sent in to us so thank you very much Chelsea uh and she asks what if any animals from the prairie or grasslands do you find interesting so yeah I will I'll go first I think uh I'm gonna admit something to you that I am gonna cheat a little bit here, Chelsea, because I'm not gonna just stick the species that are from the prairie and grasslands that would be more local to your
0: uh, area oh, of the she's, world. She's not specified because I've also done the same thing that you have, Erin. I've I've taken the the literal grasslands and prairies, which are found in yeah. multiple parts of the world.
1: Yeah, but she did say where she was from uh, in a previous question, I believe. Um, So I didn't know entirely if she wanted to go down specifically her, like uh, the, the Americas or. or, or
0: I think we can certainly include them as well.
1: I'll start with the Americas. So one of my, uh, one of my absolute favorites um, is actually the pronghorn. Um, I've got a great deal of respect for pronghorn because it's a bit of an odd animal. Uh, Now, when I say pronghorn, some people might not know what it is. Other people are thinking of an American antelope. Now, this is a really odd animal because it may surprise you to know that uh, these guys evolved as... Pu- I'm going to say that again. So I'm going to start off closer to, to 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 where you are from, though, Chelsea, um, because one of my favourites is a bit of an odd animal called a pronghorn. And some people won't know what a pronghorn is, and other people will immediately think of an american antelope however it may be a surprise to you to hear that despite appearances that seem to ally the species with antelope it's actually closer related to giraffes and okapis so it's it really in a manner of thinking uh, an, an american uh giraffe or an american giraffid um another uh it it's obviously not i'm i'm oversimplifying that but but it's it's a cool little factoid another cool factoid about the pronghorn is that it actually evolved as part of a uh, sorry it actually evolved as the result of an arms race with the cheetah or the american cheetah really because the animal is often considered to be an african species uh but actually had a once far wider range and evolved initially in the americas um and yeah, the pronghorn basically evolved to survive the cheetah, and the cheetah evolved to catch the pronghorn. They're constantly one-upping each other. Anyway, moving on. So one didn't up anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, another of my favorites from, uh, from, from your neck of the woods is bison. And I do plan to cover bison and our local variant over here, the Weisson. Um, in detail on a creature feature in the future. but I do love bison and they're a little bit different from in that Wi' are more kind of forest dwelling um, whereas bison are uh, well I think you've got a few uh, you've got different subspecies, but the the, tr- the the big bison I'm thinking about is your is your grassland bison, your prairie bison. Uh, how can you not be impressed by that animal? Um, if you hop over the Atlantic you, and land on land on uh, on Africa now, I'm a sucker for elephants. So uh, the African savannah uh, elephant is probably very high up on my list of, of grasslands animals and a little savage beast uh, that we call a ratel, which for anyone who doesn't know what a ratel is, <laughs> that's, that's a honey badger. They are incredible animals. Um and lastly, not lastly, because there's there's loads that I uh, that I could list. I could rattle off a list quite long about this uh, this, this species from this biome. But I'm I'm going to cheat a little bit more and uh, and and name tiger because what would a list of my favorite animals be without tigers in it somewhere? Now, I know that in truth tigers show a variety of habitat preferences. So yeah, as I said, I'm I'm cheating even further just to try and sneak them into the conversation. But in India. There are plenty of tigers that live pretty much in and around the grass and areas. So
0: Gareth, Mm. what about you? Well, I'm going to go small on most of mine. Okay. Uh, In fact, the the largest animal I'm going to go with is a North American uh, species. I've got three that I thought would be worth mentioning. One, the sage grouse, which is the largest species I'm going to bring up, uh, well actually maybe second to the largest species uh that i'm going to bring up um because they are stunning when they display they are a large bird that is found on the prairies uh in north america and they have large uh, air sacs that when they display make this very distinctive sort of whoop whoop sort of sound as the air yeah. rushes in and out of these air sacs uh and they protrude forward these sort of greeny brown air sacs about the size of a I don't know, trying to, like the size of an avocado either side of this bird's neck popping out of these bright white feathers uh, in the middle of a lecking display. Uh, the males do this to impress the females and it is, it's a really stunning looking display and a really stunning looking bird as well. The other one that I wanted to mention is the, the incredibly rare prairie chicken, uh, which is another small grouse like bird from North America. And thanks to the conservation efforts of lots of different um, uh, zoos and and conservation areas throughout uh, that part of North America, you've got them, their numbers coming back and they're being reintroduced more and more uh, back into their native habitats. Uh, And along the, the same lines, an animal that would definitely predate on them is the black footed ferret, which definitely deserves a mention They're a real conservation success story. They look just like a normal ferret in the same sense of uh, body plan and everything, but they've got this lovely black mask that um, gives them uh, almost a raccoon like appearance in the face Uh, and obviously black feet as well. They were almost wiped out. Um, And yet again, just like the prairie chicken, they're being reintroduced back into the, uh, the areas where they found Uh, they naturally prey on things like the prairie chickens and, um, Prairie dogs, I think, uh, as as well. So, really cool species in those parts of the world. And we're going to hop over now. I'll go. I will also follow Aaron to Africa briefly, uh, where I would like to point out the uh, uh, where I'd like to point out the long-tailed widow bird, uh, which is a a small uh, finch species found in uh, in Africa. If you imagine something about the size of, um, well, a, a large sparrow, completely black apart from a slightly red orange bar on its wing, and then a tail that is almost uh, tail feathers that are almost three times the length of the bird trailing hmm. off this thing, that when it flies, they've just got this lovely, lovely tail, and they, they do a, um, a flight where the tail is drooping below them as they sort of swoop across the grass, trying to impress the females, putting themselves at real risk of things like servals jumping out and pulling them down and eating them. But yeah, stunning looking birds, not very big, but the huge, huge tail feathers on them. Uh, It's one of those real sort of peacock stories where they're, they're showing off their physical ability to take stress by growing these huge extra bits that they don't need. Um, And then we'll jump over from Africa briefly to Australia, where I'm going to say kangaroos because they live in the grasslands of Australia, the Eastern gray. Uh, They're really, really cool. Found pretty much everywhere, but um, grasslands are one of their sort of favorite areas, Hmm. but forget about them. The final place. uh, Sorry. There's two final places I wanted to mention high up in the grassland, the tussock grasslands of New Zealand, um, in the the sort of more mountainous regions where there is a lot of grass, you've got the takahe, which is a large uh, member of the um, the rail family, sort of the swamp hen family uh, of birds, and they were almost wiped out. Uh, and apart from a small remnant population found up in a in a valley, they were thought to be extinct at one point. But conservation efforts are now seeing their their reintroduction back into other areas throughout New Zealand where they survive in these, these tough grasslands of not very much else to eat. That's really cool. But the final grassland I wanted to mention is one of my favourite creatures of which I've never seen. Not that I've seen any of those other animals actually, which is, apart from the eastern grey kangaroo, <laughs> that's really sad actually thinking of all those other animals I've never seen. But I've picked some really obscure ones I suppose
1: i've actually I, I i didn't think to say this at the time, but I've actually worked with eastern grey kangaroos they're really cool
0: yeah they're nice they're hmm. they're quite a nice species um but the final one is the uh is right here in the u k in our grassland habitat, which is the coastal grassland habitats that we have in amongst the sand dunes, which unfortunately get far too eroded by tourists just walking through them and breaking up the uh the clumps and just seeing it as grass in the way of them getting to the beach. But in amongst those grassland habitats there uh, is one of our most ferocious predators. And that is the, um, the tiger beetle.
1: Oh, cool. Yeah.
0: Tiny, tiny predatory beetle that move at an incredible pace. They've got really, really good vision. I've never seen one. I've always wanted to see one up close. I've gone looking in loads of different places, but I'm always unlucky and trying to find them. But yeah, that would be that would be one of my favorite species to hopefully go and see. I mean, if I any on those lists would be pretty cool. Well,
1: that's right. Really- yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: Hopefully that has uh, has given you an idea of some of the our favorite grassland species. In fact, we could have even gone as far as saying things like, um, I thought you would have actually mentioned uh, Aaron, the the uh, antelope." You antelope. Know?
1: That was that was in my top ten because I did mm. originally have a uh, a list of ten, okay, and one of those was actually a, even more of a cheat than tiger because it was actually an extinct animal. But um, <laughs> oh, we're not bringing extinct animals into that. <laughs> it was a, it was a mammoth, but uh, yeah, yeah um, but yeah, I decided to cut it down to five just to. It's it's really hard, sense. isn't it? It is because 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 you often think of like when you think of interesting biomes. So don't think of interest in animals and don't think of interest in plants. Ask people what their top two biomes are. And people are yeah. gonna say it more than likely they're gonna say jungle, probably ocean, ocean. Yeah. And then the other one will either be like desert or arctic. And that that will be the four that get mentioned. No one really talks about the grasslands. Yeah. But a lot of the species in the grasslands are really, really
0: cool and really, really interesting. Tibetan wolf. That that's another one that's really amazing. Ethiopian wolf. Yeah, yeah. I believe the Iberian wolf as well. Yep. Uh, it's um, just the list goes on. There are bears.
1: On. I think the spectacled bear is a, is a grasslands. Mountainous, uh,
0: but but grasslands. Yeah, mountainous more. Really um but, yeah, yeah the the list is is pretty extensive especially when you take into account the fact that grasslands cover a good area of the planet yeah in fact uh, that brings us to the point of uh saying this week our question for you dear listeners is what is your favorite grassland species uh, and if that sends you down a rabbit hole of looking for uh, a species that you may never have heard of all the better in fact there is a fantastic episode of uh, Planet Earth 2 that is all about grasslands, which mm. I'd highly recommend going and watching. So uh, let us know in the usual places on our Facebook and our Twitter, where we'll put that up uh, later in the week um, as to uh, to what the question is. But, um, Aaron, that pretty much brings us to the end of the episode, so where I get to tell people... Screaming to a halt. I know. If you want to get in contact with us or with uh, anything we've said, um, if you want to shout at us, please don't shout at us. But uh, if you want to send us an email, feel free to do so on our email address. Uh, it is the nat history cupboard at gmail.com. Like I say, we're always on Twitter and on Facebook, where we put all of our different bits and pieces up. We're also on Instagram and on our fantastic T-Mill store as well, where all the different merch is available. Uh, but remember, if you liked what you've heard, you can leave us a review on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Um, like, subscribe, smash a bell, put an icon somewhere, move something, I don't know, tick something, click a box, one of those. Um, but Aaron, that just leaves me to say big thank you for uh, for being here. Yeah, you're very
1: welcome. Another, another educational uh, lesson.
0: Well, thank you. I I, do you know what I think we've done quite we've covered quite a bit of ground in this episode. I think uh, so. Yeah, Uh, and um, a big thank you uh, to you at home for listening, and we'll see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. So, were you able to
1: see in the dark and hunt squid? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What did it cost you? (laughs) Ha <laughs>